Welcome back everybody. The topic I want to look at in this installment is experiencing rurality. Now in our conversation last time with Adrian Pickley, he talked about the notion of there being different needs and concerns and different ways of understanding the rural depending on things like size, community factors and culture. And there being multiple cultures as well of course. Now when we look at our definitions of what it is to be rural and how we define rurality, we've been working with that multiplicity idea. Now, if there are multiple rurals because of multiple factors like social, cultural, demographic, geographic, um, etc., then it stands to reason that there are multiple ways of experiencing the rural. And that's one of the key things in our understanding in our studies of rural communities. Just because we've been to one rural community doesn't mean we can generalize that experience across others. And this is where that multiplicity of definitions comes in. Different production, different population sizes, as Adrian was talking about, different uh, distances between services, all lead to different ways that it is to live and to experience that community and that place. Now, a really useful way of thinking about this, I think, comes from theory. I like to use here uh, Lefebvre's notion of a trialectic. Now this was reworked by, uh, by Edward Sozier but comes from basically from Lefebvre's work. And he talks about the perceived, conceived and lived space in that trialectic. So basically you've got the perceived or the taken for granted neutral space. That's the, the space that planners might um, design uh, cityscapes or townscapes upon or other land use forms. Then there's the conceived space. That's how we understand it in our mind and how we construct it as a, as a location. But then there's also the lived space, what it's actually like to, to be in that place and how it is then represented socially. And this leads to an idea around the rural or space in the theoretical sense as being both real and imagined. Now, in the context of our rural work, what that means is I might throw a town name out there and people have a reaction to it. It's like, oh, that's so far away. Or, oh, there's issues I've heard in the media. Okay? But that's a, a reaction that is from that conceived, a social construction. Some of those things we referenced in our last talk with Adrian around the way that the rural is portrayed in popular culture, um, both positively and negatively. Now, that's different to, say, the, the planning space, which might see that as a location to locate an industry or a form of production. But then it's even more different to the lived space, because while I might, someone might have a reaction to that location as being something they've heard of in popular culture, it's also somebody's home. It's where people have lived for thousands, tens of thousands of years, and it's where people have lived in the type of communities that have been here since the Europeans arrived, uh, in the last couple of hundred years. Okay? It is still someone's home. And it might be distant or far away or fearful to some, but it's home to them. I know when I do some of my uh, traveling and, and work in the country, had some interesting conversations with people in some far away remote towns. And they were like, I don't want to go to X city. That's a scary place. So I have teachers telling me they don't want to go out to so-and-so because they're scared of a small town, but the same with the small town people going to the city, or they're scared to go out at night. They have to make sure they get back to the apartment in time. All right? 
the same when I go into China, for instance, and you know, the volume of people around in, in some rural China locations and Western China towns where I might go, you know, very different to the small town that I live in. So we have a Chinese friend in a Chinese uh, school near us who wouldn't walk 500 meters home at night because there's so few people around, they found that frightening. Okay, versus people going in a large Chinatown at night um, in, the, in, in Western China, being fearful of the thousands of people around. So it's all about how we under, come to understand this through our, through our experience. Now, a couple of other theoretical aspects here that I think are really useful is throwing in Doreen Massey's idea. The way we imagine space has effects. So how we imagine it determines whether we're willing to go there. Is it too far to go? Does it have... Uh, uh, the services that we or the culture that we might value, or does it have some sort of cultural reference that makes it something that we think is fearful? Same with uh, Foucault, talking about space as being fundamental to any form of communal life and fundamental to the exercise of power, okay? because it's about governing space. Okay? For instance, Bill Green and Will Letts work around, uh, around rural education uh, going back in 2006, I think, talking about there the idea that well, education in New South Wales particularly, in Australia more generally, went out into the country regions in order to control space. So all that vast area out there where the European settlement didn't have control was fearful. It was, it was uh, you know, it could uh, run amok. So we had to be controlled by bringing education and other services. So hence we have this centralised notion of controlling space from the centre and we have very centralised education systems as a result, which then, and the organisational principle of government, have paid off in other things like health, policing and so forth. Okay, we don't have the idea that these spaces can be self-governing and can be uh, generating of their own forms of authority. That has to be, be governed from, from afar. Now this idea of the sort of cultural narrative, the, the social construct here, is really uh, part of their culture. I always reference back to one particular, two particular notions actually. One is the map of Australia. Okay. When we look at a map of Australia, we often see that, well, hey, most people live in the southeast corner, and all that space in the middle doesn't seem to have, in uh, many uh, European maps, a whole lot of people living there. So one, do we imagine Australia as the coast, or the 85% of people in a couple of big cities on the coast? Okay. That has one impact about how we imagine Australia, centre periphery relations. The other one is when we look at the, the map of language groups of Australia okay, prior to Europeans' arrival. There's you know, 260 odd language groups all throughout the Australian continent. Okay, so if we think of that as the organising principle, then we have a land that is occupied by distinct cultures, distinct language groups, which remain by and large today, been massively impacted by the arrival of Europeans. But as an organising principle, you know, that's, that is the country that we are living in and we're occupying. But we don't often think of it that way. We think of it around terms of cities and other fringes. That's one issue. It leads to the next issue, which is around cultural stereotypes. Right? If we look up you know, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, and when they get together every, uh, every few years and they have a, uh, have a get-together, it's traditional to wear a traditional outfit of the host nation. Right, so go and look up what they wore when they came to Australia on your relevant search engine. Because okay, there we have a picture, last time APEC was in Australia, of the world leaders outside the Sydney Opera House 
wearing a Kubra hats and driver bones as a national uh, national dress. Now, that suits an imagery of the myth of Australia's rural foundations, but don't know that's the national dress. Probably a business suit is probably more close to the national dress. But that's what they choose to use when APEC comes to represent the nation. So this is this real or imagined and representations of society. Okay, it's a really um, important organising notion about how we, uh, how we go about things in Australia. Now, as we think about these issues and we look at the structure, a couple of things we need to come around. One notion that I talk a bit about is cosmopolitanism. So cosmopolitanism is that idea of being mobile in the global world and having a global outlook. And it links to uh, that sort of movement of ideas, movement of people in modernity. Okay, referencing back to our first podcast where we made the point that over half the world's population is now urban. So that cosmopolitan movement becomes part of that identity. Now, it also links into what we call that notion of neoliberalism. That's that popular uh, term which is often used as a, a semi-term of derision now around public policy based on free market philosophies of competition and performance management and accountability. In education it comes down to, and in health as well, comes down to you know, measuring performance, uh, ranking that performance, uh, having a whole f range of frameworks that you're measured against and then having external testing and ranking that against others. Okay? That's created a notion where teachers are observed and that's said in education to have had a huge impact on professional identity and self-efficacy because people are losing control of what it is to be a teacher. Now, we link those things with that idea of public accountability and competition as being good with global, mo global mobility in a globalised world. We're psyching this notion of cosmopolitanism and it represents a bit of a world view about competition and mobility that says if you don't believe in this sort of global mobility and this massive uh, mixing of people in the same way, then you're backwards. Now, it's not to reinforce a notion that rural communities are, are homogenous, because they're certainly not. And some of them are actually the most cosmopolitan. All right? Particularly, uh, a lot of farmers are the ones who are most connected to the global economy, but we'll leave that stereotype to one side. But the idea that, well, the global urban, that notion of the global metropole coming from large cities like, say, New York, London, Paris, etc. Okay, that notion that to link globally, to move between countries, to mix people, and to have this comp relentless competition and accountability, well, creates a system of governance which assumes the city as a norm. The standards of performance, okay, the standards of measuring a hospital, measuring a school are based on the idea that hospitals are close by or schools are larger and have more offerings. doesn't get into the full diversity of schools and hospitals which have different organising principles in locations that are more sparsely, um, that are further apart and not as highly densely populated. You don't have the same attraction of specialists or ability to get into larger subject offerings. You have more close-knit connections, um, more generalist skill bases when you get into some of these uh, regional areas. So the nation of what it is to practice health, what it is to work in a school, doesn't operate. Now we can't just turn around and say, well, it's a substandard approach because it's not the same as a city, because it never would be the same as a city and to hold it up to that standard is a false accountability. What if we flipped it? What if we said, 
okay, if we started with hospitals in the country, schools in the country, where it's about providing a full range of services, providing uh, curriculum offerings with smaller numbers of students, and then took that to the city, maybe we'd have a totally different approach. I wouldn't need to go to six specialists to solve a medical problem. I'd be able to solve it with one doctor who'd be trained across a range of concepts. Okay? So there are differences of how we do some of this stuff that we need to be, be thinking about. Moving on, thinking of the rural and how it's experienced globally, okay? and this getting towards notions of, um, of the implicit comparison that exists here, unfortunately. We have rural communities internationally tend to be getting older, so aging, less access to health, tend to have high suicide rates, population decline is usually a norm, except for increasing indigenous or first nations or minority group populations, lower economic activity and lower educational outcomes. Now, that's a descriptive way of talking about the objective um, description of conditions in some of these locations. That is implicitly comparative. It's implicitly comparing to the city, okay, where the city is the norm. Now, we don't get into there the differences within cities. The uh, fact that some areas in the cities have all of those things as well, okay, and have high crime rates and other things, or congestion and other problems. But there's this implicit norming. That's that metronormativity notion that goes on. All right? um, so we've got to be mindful of that. But that's one of the characteristics. What that means is the way we experience rural communities now is that, well, there are some challenges, okay? Access to health, uh, mental health issues, changing population bases to base economic activity upon, okay? These are really significant issues. The affordability of housing. I think Adrian was mentioning that in his talk with us. becomes an issue of who's attracted then back into rural communities. And this is really important context for the services and the professions that we might work in because these are the characteristics that might make some of the locations where the professions need to act, need to go in and... and um, and take up positions as being places that maybe they didn't choose to in the first place. Okay, so, but these situate in the broad social context. So how can we engage with the broad social context of rural communities to increase their attractiveness for the professions? That becomes one of the key issues. Educationally, yeah, okay, we've got the Halsey report that talked about you know, less early childhood education, decreasing NAPLAN and retention rates, senior secondary decreasing, um, completion decreasing. Uh, less matriculation to higher ed, um, but more vocational. So less academic engagement, higher vocational engagement. And we'll look at some of this stuff in more detail. Now, that might be a good thing about vocational work, but it shouldn't just be uh, vocational only as the option in regional areas. But it is rather sad that there tends to be poorer outcomes across the board in education. But, but there's a silver lining. And we will talk about this in a later episode because this is one of the things that uh, we look at particularly. It's not always the case. It comes into how you measure rural places. So we talked about the Australian Statistical Geography Standard in our first session. What tends to happen here is that people go city and everything else. But if when you break up those categories, we can see distinct patterns of educational achievement which show that teachers and schools are doing some pretty awesome stuff. It just gets lost in the uh, grouping of categories. So we need to disaggregate some of that to tell the story a little bit better. And that brings me to the whole notion of what we value and what we experience, which is what uh, we wanted to talk about. Okay. What I've been trying to, to, to labour the point here somewhat is that the rural is a multifaceted concept. 
And when we engage with that multifaceted nature of the rural, then we have different ways of experiencing it and understanding it. And this is where the perceived conceit and lived notion comes in from the Ferber's work. So we get that idea that, that difference exists, but it is socially constructed and it's usually embedded in our values. Hence, the metronormativity, metronormativity notions that we talk about. Okay, we bring that value. We need to remember the indigenous context, particularly in Australia. Okay, that changes the way that we look at things, uh, particularly um, post-European arrival and before and the continuation and restitution of those cultures and connections. Okay, it's really something there we need to be, be working with is how we define and understand such spaces. But it also comes down to what we value. So I'm hinting here that metronormativity has this implicit, com complicit and implicit comparative notion to the metro, which doesn't consider the metro in all its diversity as well, but it then becomes part of the knowledge system that we inherit as to how we uh, engage with these things. And that's where the cosmopolitanism comes in. It's seen as being the norm. Now, I like a quote uh, from Mark Doherty, which goes back to 1987, about which child is more education disadvantaged. And this is about education, yes. But I think it says something about the nature of, of how we value these places. And he's making reference in this quote to, well, who's more disadvantaged? The, the child who has to travel 50 minutes across a bumpy outback road, but gets to ride a school or a bicycle um, around, but, you know, versus a kid who's stuck in city peak hour traffic, okay? The one who lives outside, explores the cycle of lives, of, of life on a farm and in rural communities, watches things changing, versus the one who lives in an urban environment and doesn't see anything in the external life evolving. Okay, this really starts raising questions around what we value, and that's the cosmopolitan issue. Okay? Not to say cosmopolitan is not a good thing, it's just it's the taking for granted normality of it, and how that erases some ways of being in this world in this rural senses. And that's what we want to start looking at and thinking about. From what perspective are we looking at this stuff? And in what way are we making this, this decision? And this comes down, particularly in Australia, in the public, public policy sense. So Judith Bratt in a quarterly essay in 2011 talked about, you know, referencing back to Paul Kelly's work, that we had this great Australian settlement. People in, in the city recognised that, OK, we might support the country a little bit um, with some support, but in the day... That's where food's produced, that's where mining comes from, which is the national wealth. That's where um, you know, stewardship of the land occurs. So a bit of redistribution is a good thing because we all benefit from having the country. Okay, there, It's part of the basis of the nation and nation's development. In the 80s, however, that all changed. Okay, And that was with the advent of those neoliberal policies. Suddenly people had to pay for themselves. So the idea of supporting the city no, and the, um, the city supporting the country was erased. It was suddenly a case of, well, you've got to cut your own way. You've got to make do yourself. Okay, so the relationship between the city and the country changed. Now, that's really interesting. Both culturally and economically, it meant that, well, the resource and economic base upon which to uh, be self-determinant in that sense well, wasn't there. Ironically, it still produces national wealth through mining, but that's uh, privatised, not nationalised. So very few people get that wealth. But what it also then means is, on one hand, we've stopped the relationship between city and country in a symbiotic sense, and we've separated them. And while we've done that, we haven't separated culturally what we value as what it is to achieve or the standards of achievement. 
okay, what, what quality healthcare is, what quality educational outcomes are, and I'm referencing here the knowledge upon which is based. Right? We didn't, didn't disaggregate those things. So we've turned around and said to the country, on your own, you need to make ends meet yourself, but you still need to value the stuff we do in the city because it won't help you do it. Now, that's problematic. It's changed the game. And that's something that we need to be considering in terms of our policy responses. If we're going to put the country and say, it's up to you, we need to be thinking about how we engage it in a way that is enabling it to maybe determine its own measures of achievement. Now, that's something for our future chats. I think we'll leave it there.